Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal and anybody else joining us online. Uh, We're so glad you're here uh, for this week's online service and this week's teaching. For the whole month of August, we're actually going to be having uh, different guest speakers. We're going to be basically tackling a different topic and a text and different teaching every week. And so I'm looking forward to this month just being a time to really address some of the topics that have been at the forefront of many of our minds um, and many of our lives. Before we jump in to this week, I just wanted to draw your attention to an update that will be uh, coming this week about how we as a church and we as individuals can support the relief efforts in Beirut um, with the uh, explosion happening a couple days ago, uh, we really want to be able to support local churches on the ground there. And so we have two avenues that we're going to make available for you. One is going to be supporting the relief efforts with Acts 29 um, and one of the Acts 29 churches that was decimated by uh, the explosion and also our home denomination, the Fellowship International. Right now they're working on uh, establishing a fund and an avenue to help some of the teams and relief efforts on the ground there. So please keep your eyes open. We're going to make all of those available to you, uh, different ways to give online, e-transfer, make it as easy as possible for each of us to give to that. And we as a church want to match every dollar uh, that we do give individually towards that. So thank you in advance for that. Keep your eyes open. Uh, But for today, uh, we really do want to jump in to some of the things that I think over the last six months I have been reflecting on some of the things that I've been observing, some of the things that I've been hearing, even just from you, uh, if you belong to Reach Montreal, and and as I've pastored you, as I've sat with you, as I've heard you, some of the things that we've been thinking about. And if all of us are honest, just as humans, the last six months really have been characterized by a lot of unrest, by a lot of conflict, by stress in in many different ways, coming at us from many different angles, uh, brokenness, pain, uh, loss, and grief, um, and then compounded by just kind of a low-grade hum of, of anxiety, of, of tension, just something that, that nothing is normal, nothing is where it used to be, nothing is as it used to be. And all of this has also been compounded by just, just information, uh, information and misinformation and uh, the, the pandemic that no one really seems to be able to understand or get a handle on, uh, the political posturing on every single issue. Like I've, I've never uh, noticed before until now that everything is political, right? There's nothing that's not political and that's been compounded and just kind of magnified by this season. Uh, there's been so many stressors from the economic downturn, whether it's job loss or Just things that we're seeing. I mean, just in the news this week, we see a very well-known Montreal baker commit suicide just because of this hopelessness of the economic situation for local business owners. It's just, it gets to the point of absurdity. Then we have national crises happening all over the globe for different reasons and for for, for different um, things related to coronavirus and not, Just, just these tensions. And then, of course, over the last several months, especially in America, uh, we've had racial tensions receiving global attention and then compounded by just infighting, (laughs) disagreement within the church, disagreement about when you should open, how you should open, should you open, should you not, uh, what masks should you or should you not wear, how should we react to the government or not. All of these things have just become topics that have led to tension, that have led to conflict. And what we're really seeing is that we're all kind of experiencing a crisis of of thought, a crisis of thinking, that there's actually a breakdown through all of this on how are we supposed to think about these things? How are we supposed to navigate these things clearly? How are we supposed to think about all of the above, everything I just mentioned? 
our worldviews and our perspectives are being challenged. Whether you're religious or not, whether you're a Christian or not, your worldview now is being challenged. Your convictions, your belief system is being challenged by the things that are going on in the world. Our objects of comfort have been stripped or at least changed or threatened by the last several months. There's been pressures put on us emotionally, relationally, mentally, and spiritually. And our well-being has, has felt the effects of everything going on. And so what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to face some of these things, but I wanted to do it looking specifically at how Jesus calls followers of him, his disciples, his apprentices, on how to approach conflict, how to approach tension, how to actually handle some of these things as they go on. Um, there, there is a silver lining in this. I, I, I don't think that everything that has happened has been bad. I think that some of the challenges we're facing, some of the, the tensions that we are experiencing are actually good things because conflicts aren't just bad, they're actually opportunities. And here we are with all of these things, having an opportunity to reflect, to, to think deeply, to respond obediently, to respond lovingly, to do something with some of the tensions that we are faced with. So how are we called to respond to this stuff? How are we called to, to do that? How are we called to respond to these tensions and these conflicts? I think that culturally we've seen unending examples of how not to. I think that if you just take a scroll through any social media platform, you will see unending ways, unending examples of how not to respond to these things well and fruitfully. So before we jump in, let me pray for us so that we can come at this and look and lean into how should we and how can we respond well. Uh, Father, we just invite you into this time. We thank you that you are a God who does see, a God who does care, a God who is not far from conflict, that you are a God who has actually stepped in and through conflict in order to give us peace. So we invite you into this time. We ask that you would speak, that you would open our minds, our eyes, our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us, to encourage us, to correct us, to challenge us, and ultimately change us. We love you and we invite you into this time and that it would make much of you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name, amen. So before we look at how to actually respond to conflict and these conflicts, we wanna define conflict. I mean, just kind of a good definition of conflict is really just anything that causes a difference of opinion, perspective, or purpose that frustrates someone else's goal or purpose. There's a, there's a breach in a relationship. There's two parties or two perspectives and a conflict happens when there's not alignment between those two. It's the sense that there is an irreconcilable feeling between a relationship. There's a breach and a brokenness that doesn't allow unity or understanding between two parties. That's, that's conflict. That's just kind of a general definition of, of conflict. And what we have to understand is that conflict happens in every single relationship. And not just in every single relationship, but conflict happens in every sphere of influence that we find ourselves. That whether it's in our marriages or with our friends or with our coworkers, with our siblings, with our parents, with our kids, with our neighbors, conflict is inevitable and unavoidable. Why? Well, because relationships are inevitable and unavoidable. You and I need relationship. We were created for relationship. And sometimes when conflict arises, it seems easier to just kind of, well, everybody else is the problem. Let me just cut out relationships with others and get away from them. 
But if you and I do that, what ends up happening is we're still left in relationship with ourself. And we still will have internal conflicts and tensions within ourself because we have a relationship to ourself. So conflicts are never enjoyable. Let's just admit that from the beginning, right? Anybody's just like, right, I, I don't like them. They, they are not fun. They're not enjoyable at all, but they are inevitable and they are always opportunities. They always present some kind of an opportunity for change, for understanding, and for growth. And just generally speaking within kind of psychology, there's three ways that, that I think we respond to conflict naturally. And, and some of us know the two of like fight and flight. And, and so many of these kind of coping mechanisms or ways to handle conflict or stress or tension come from our family of origins. And so as you become an adult, as you grow into your 20s and you, know, you have a family of your own and you get into your 30s and then you get into middle age and you get into older, like you, you start to realize like so much of how we handle things has been adopted from our family of origin. And if you remember the series we did last fall looking at just kind of emotionally healthy spirituality, we, we tackled that a lot, that this actually has an impact on how we handle everything, including conflict. So the first way that we tend to respond to conflict boiled kind of down the first way is, is that we fight. We, we just, we attack, we ridicule, we, we belittle whoever we don't agree with or we don't understand. So we just kind of, we fight. We turn it into, it's like, well, we're in, a, we're in conflict, so let's just fight it out, right? The second way is, is we flight. And that's kind of just avoid. We distract, we escape. We look for ways to escape from conflict. It's like, nope, not going to do it. Not doing conflict. I'll do anything but conflict and I'll do everything to keep me from experiencing conflict. And usually that leads to kind of blame, blame shifting, blaming others, um, dismissing or denying the seriousness of the conflict just to kind of like protect our own mental and emotional sanity, right? And if we're honest, most of us uh, either land at fight or flight and we're way better at avoiding conflict than resolving it. And there's a third way. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. There's actually a third way to approach conflict. If conflict is unavoidable uh, because relationships are unavoidable, we want to look at the third way. And the third way is not fight, not flight, but, but work it out. That there's actually an opportunity to work it out. That when conflict arises, there's a way to make peace. There's a way to actively and honestly face the tension, face the conflict, seek reconciliation, try to understand how to bring things together if things have been breached and broken apart. That we work to hear the other, understand the other person, how they're feeling, what they're believing, what they're thinking. And then we can actually intentionally overlook minor things so that in conflict, we can actually look at the major things. We can understand how to come at the major offenses and and really just overlook minor offenses because of the relationship. And other times it involves an a third party, becoming a mediating party, someone that's able to come and be a sounding board for us to speak back to us in a conflict, what it is that is actually going on and what it is that we're actually communicating. Now, this last response, work it out, is exactly what Jesus calls his disciples to. He calls it peacemaking. And if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus unpacks so many ethics about what it looks like to follow him that it looks like that we belong to him. When we belong to him, we belong to a different kingdom. When he is king and Lord, our life looks different. Why? Well, because our life isn't belonging to us anymore. It belongs to Jesus. 
and, and kingdom people that belong to Jesus and worship Jesus as king and Lord no longer worship self as king and Lord. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he shows that kingdom people are different because their life belongs to him. And they're different because of what they admire, of what they desire, of how they speak, of how they act, of how they live, of how they think. That there's a difference about kingdom people when their life is put into Jesus's hands. That's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Beatitudes, the kind of blessed are those, blessed are you if, he unpacks several things in Matthew 5, uh, verse 9. Here's what he says. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who fight for peace, for they will be called children of God. Now that's just one of the Beatitudes and we don't have time to kind of pack it, but that's one that really is connected to all of them. We did the, a series about a year and a half ago through all these verses. So I would encourage you to go back and take a look to, to kind of hear a fuller understanding of what's going on in these verses. But what Jesus is doing here, notice what he says, is that blessed are the peacemakers that you, you and I actually can make peace, that you and I can actively move towards making peace where it is not. And what that's not saying is peacemaking. Sometimes you, we have these strange understandings of what that looks like. But, but peacemaking and peacemakers are not just peaceable people. This doesn't mean that we are passive people. Peacemakers aren't those who avoid conflict at all costs. We don't flight. We don't flight, flight just flee from conflict. And also it's those that, that don't fight, don't go and actually cause conflict. That's not what a peacemaker does. It doesn't, also mean that, that we're just kind of checked out, that we're easygoing, that this is a personality trait. Like some people are just more peaceable. That's not what a peacemaker is. And in fact, this is connected to the Hebrew concept of shalom, of peace. And, and the concept in Hebrew is, is, is bigger than just kind of like peace, man. Yeah, like harmony. Way bigger than that. It's, it's wholeness. It's well-being. It's holistic and it's also what happens when two parties who are alienated from each other are reconciled. That is called peace. When there's opposition, when that's reconciled, that is shalom. That's peace. And all throughout the Old Testament, we have examples of this. We have entire sacrifices in the ritual system of Israel around peace offerings. The idea that there's been something that has pushed two parties apart whoever they are, and there's a way to bring them back together, and that is shalom. And so the image is that there's been a foreign object kind of thrust into a relationship that has forced two people or two parties apart, and they've been driven apart, and peacemakers aren't passive or avoidant to that. They're actually active, and they strive for that to happen, that they fight for peace where it isn't. They fight for peace where there is unrest, they fight for repair and restoration where there is brokenness. They fight for healing where, where there is a breach. And that is a peacemaker. But peace requires making everywhere there is conflict and difference. That, that, that peace making is an active thing and it, it's required everywhere there is conflict. So that could look like several different spheres of relationship or influence that you and I have. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this, great Welsh preacher of the last century. And I love what he says. Listen to what he says here. These easygoing, peace-at-any-price people are often lacking in a sense of justice and righteousness. This is him starting saying this is not what a peacemaker is. They do not stand where they should stand. They are flabby. They appear to be nice, right? Everyone just wants to seem nice. 
But if the whole world were run on such principles and by such people, it would be even worse than it is today. He is not content to let sleeping dogs lie or maintaining the status quo. He desires peace and he does all that he can to produce peace and to maintain it. I think that's a great definition of a peacemaker. And it stresses the active nature of peacemaking, that it's active and it's an intentional effort. This is backed up and talked about in so many other verses. I'll share a couple with you um, because we don't have time to kind of get into all of it. But Romans 14, 19 is one uh, where the apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome says, make every effort. Okay, so already you see the active nature of this. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Mutual edification. So peacemakers make every effort to fight for something that is not there when there are differences, but it's for mutual edification. It's not for one-upmanship. It's not to be right so I can show them that they're wrong. It's not to correct others because I'm sitting in the place where I can correct and criticize others, but it's for mutual edification. That there's a, a certain maturity that comes with that. That is, that it asks the question of, this is gonna lead to peace, but is it gonna be good for both parties? Is it going to be mutually healthy and lead to wholeness, shalom, peace? Hebrews 12, 14 is another example where the church is called uh, to pursue peace with everyone. And I love when scripture says stuff like that because immediately you go, oh yeah, but I mean, yeah, that, that's nice. Not them though, right? Like not, not those ones. And it's like, well, pursue peace with, with everyone. Everyone. And it's funny because in the Greek, it's actually everyone, right? And right away, you have a category of people that you're like, nah, yeah, I don't think so. And, and that's just not what peacemakers do. Uh, one, one commentator says, the peacemaker is a fighter. <laughs> that there's a fight against internal things and external things as we move towards peace. That we actually make trouble to make peace. That we wage peace. Not war, but peace. But it's waged because it's, it's active and it's with everyone, and we're never done the work of peacemaking. That's, that's, that's incredible. It's incredible that's the call of Jesus' followers, of Jesus' disciples and apprentices, that, that he would say that we're supposed to go and work towards peace with everyone, everyone. And so the thing is, if you are a follower of Jesus, what is clear from these verses is that you are a peacemaker. Now, you might be a terrible one, but you are a peacemaker that blessed are the peacemakers because they are called children of God. Now that's, that's specific language about people who have already experienced the power of the gospel, the rescue and the adoption power of the gospel, that as orphans who have run off and done other things with their life and given themselves over to other things, that we have been rescued, reconciled, brought into a new family with God as father to represent him that now we get to act like our dad. We get to act like him and represent him and our new family. That what the gospel does is it takes us from giving our life to other things and receiving value from other things and it gives us a new name, a new identity, a new family by the work that Jesus does on the cross. So if you are a child of God, if you are a son and daughter of the king, then you are a peacemaker. And why this is important and the order is important is because peacemaking isn't man-made. You and I are not good at peacemaking. The world is not good at peacemaking. 
the world is good at dumpster fires. And if we look right now culturally and globally, men and women are not good at peacemaking because it's not man-made. It's not mustered up. It's not namasteed. It's not. It's, it's only, true peace only comes from the God who offers true peace. The God who is able to offer true peace. And that's what the gospel does. That, that the God who offers true peace is the God who seeks out his enemies, who seeks out those who have squandered everything he's given them and forgives them and loves them and reconciles them and heals them and gives them peace. And I love when Jesus talks to his disciples just before his ascension and he says to them, I give you my peace. Like here, here it is. I'm gonna give you my peace. Now go and live like that. It's, it's, it's not man-made. It's God-given. And where does God make this available? How does God make this available? Well, Colossians 1 tells us exactly how this happens and how this is on offer for you and I. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, the whole on earth and heaven thing, don't get too kind of ethereal about that. All that's saying is every, every dominion, every realm, just like in creation in Genesis, we see heaven and earth. That's everything. That it, Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross for everyone everywhere to go and work out in everything. And then that is what a peacemaker does. And it's crazy because right here in the Greek, the making peace by the blood of the cross is the same verb that's used in the Sermon on the Mount for peace makers that jesus makes peace by violence that he actually makes peace by fighting that he makes peace by shedding his blood he makes peace with a costly sacrifice of his life that's not passive that's active and i love here that like like why not say resurrection that we get peace with god by the power of the resurrection that's a big deal it's a big deal in christian theology that Christ was raised from the dead. I mean, everything kind of rides on that. But, but it's by the blood of the cross that we receive peace. Why? Well, because it's when you and I are kneeled at the cross that we're reminded of our flaws, that we're reminded of our brokenness, that we're reminded of our need for mercy and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And also what it does by being kneeled at the foot of the cross, it rehumanizes everyone kneeled beside us at the foot of the cross. That there's no more one-upmanship, that there's no more moral high ground for anyone at the foot of the cross. That enemies are humanized because they need mercy too. That you and I need mercy and grace and peace and there's no, nothing left to stand on. That we come to the foot of the cross with empty hands, empty pockets and we come and we say it's at the foot of the cross that in nothing in my hands I bring it simply to the cross I cling because we have nothing left that's why Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross that's why at the foot of the cross we are reconciled back to God because we see God for who he truly is and because of that transformation we see a self as we truly are, and we see others as they truly are. It entirely changes the playing field. 
There is no more supremacy allowed there. There is no more moral high ground allowed there. There is no more critical spirit allowed there because we're all equally sinful, vile, and in need of reconciliation and healing from the God who made us. So just hear me. (laughs) Without Christ's work on the cross, you are left with an irreconcilable difference with the God who created you. You do not have peace with the God who created you without the blood of the cross. You can pursue peace. You can try to muster it up. You can go and look for it in other things. You will not find it because what you will be left with is an irreconcilable difference with the God who created you. And the cross is an invitation to everyone, anyone to come to know who they truly are by seeing God who, by who, who he truly is. That's what the gospel does. That Jesus as God in flesh, that he had put skin on and came to us to reconcile us back to him, that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the ultimate peacemaker, invites everyone to be reconciled, to be brought back to God, to be forgiven of sin, to be healed of brokenness, to be restored to God, and to be offered peace. It's the beauty of the gospel. So peacemaking is reflective of that. And if you and I are a follower of Jesus, then peacemaking is an active pursuit and the practice of extending grace and mercy to others who have not yet experienced it because it's a display that you already have. You and I cannot share with somebody what we don't already have. And so you are a peacemaker if you're a follower of Jesus. You may not be a good one yet, but the command and the call doesn't change. That if we have experienced the grace and mercy and love and reconciling power of the cross, you better believe that should come out in the way that we go and live in the world. It has to. And if it doesn't, it questions how much we know about the God that makes himself available on the cross. We miss something. We need daily reminders of the heart and mind and posture and character of this God because it's in that that he transforms us to go out and be witnesses and have a ministry of reconciliation to bring people back to him. That's our call. And it's no mistake that right after the Sermon on the Mount teachings here, Jesus goes into his teaching about being salt and light. That where things are decaying and just just rotting, that we go out and we, we preserve, that we're agents of preservation, And that in places of darkness and vile wickedness and brokenness that we go out and we shine light on those things so they can't continue. And then we offer correction and offer peace. And there's several ways that Jesus does this throughout the Sermon on the Mount where he kind of takes these beatitudes and he takes what peacemaking looks like and then he just like pushes it into do's and do nots, right? And I'll I'll share a couple examples and we'll, we'll run through them quickly. But Matthew 5, 21, Jesus actually calls to interrupt gathered worship and and offering an offering at the altar to do what? To go and seek reconciliation and make peace with a brother. If there's been offense between a believer, a brother or a sister, he actually says, stop worshiping in the gathering and go and make things right and then come back to the altar. That's, That's crazy. And whether it was intentional or unintentional, don't come and offer me something, God is saying, without going and reconciling with your brother. Imagine what the church would look like if we practiced that. A little bit later in verse 43, 
You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a, a common saying in the first century. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. Love your enemy and pray for them. Why? But because you can't pray for somebody that you harbor resentment towards. You can't pray for somebody well unless you are looking to establish peace and reconcile with them. Imagine how our hearts would change towards those that we have disagreements with or conflicts with when we start to pray for them. A little bit later in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, Jesus does this again. And he talks specifically about forgiveness and reconciliation and that the, the forgiveness of others proves that we have been forgiven by God. And then he calls us to extend the same mercy, the same grace, the same tenderness, the same patience that God has extended to us, to everyone. And then last, finally in Matthew 7, Jesus reminds us, it's just a, a great image, to remove the log from our eye when we go to try to attempt to remove a sliver from a brother or sister's eye. It's just like you have this log cabin, this cottage, right, just hanging from your eyeball. And you're like, you got a little, you got a little something there, right? It's intentionally hyperbolic. But, but what it's calling for is, is self-examination. And in today's culture, we're so so roped into examining everyone else. Whether it's from afar, whether it's through social media, whatever it is, Jesus calls for self-examination before we examine anyone else. And he goes on to say that the measure by which we judge and criticize others is the same that God is gonna use for us. And that's, that's scary. That's scary when I think about the ways that maybe I think about others sometimes or I see something they post, or I see something they say, or an article that they've read, or an interview that I've seen them in, and I immediately come at them with a standard that, that is frightening. And Jesus calls us to self-examination. And, and he's calling us to mercy. He's calling us to grace in how we treat one another by first asking, well, could, could I be off in how I see this? Could, is, there, is there something in me that needs to change before I go and offer correction or try to tell someone else that they need to change? Is there something that I need to do and, and approach uh, differently before I go and try to approach this person and offer correction? Those are so, so important in the process of peacemaking. And I think one of the most effective witnesses, church, that, that we can have today is to have a listening posture in a culture of constant noise. To be a peaceful people, a peacemaking people in a panic culture to be a, a non-toxic and non-triggered people amidst a triggered and toxic culture. You see, I think, I think peacemakers genuinely refuse to participate in polarization, in the partiality, and in the divisions of our culture. Can you imagine the witness of the church today? Can you imagine the statement that the church would make about the God that we claim to worship and follow? if we refuse to participate in the polarization and the demonization and the dehumanization of people in our culture. And whether that's politics or political issues or whether that's COVID-19 and masks or no mask or whether that's churches who are gathering already or are not, uh, whether it's our views of racial and social justice, imagine that we could show them a better way instead of just polarizing that we could actually show them what peacemaking looks like even if we don't agree sometimes. And I think one of the key things here, and we see it all over scripture, is that peacemakers are really good listeners. The peacemakers, they, they listen. The reason why this is so important is because listening cultivates empathy. 
And empathy is an expression of the incarnation. And we just read in Colossians 1 that it's, it's God coming to us. It's God entering in, incarnating himself, taking up residence with us. That God moves into the neighborhood to understand us and then transform us. That there's amazing beauty in that, that, that listening creates and cultivates empathy and empathy is an expression of the incarnation. And the gospel is nothing less than Jesus freely entering our world. Entering our world and entering your world. To, to listen, to know you, to, to hear you, and then to empower you and change you. And so for us as peacemakers, we're called to freely enter into someone's world. To actually go into their world. Walk around in their shoes. Look at life through their eyes. See things how they see them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to agree. It doesn't mean that we're even going to validate what they believe or how they feel or what they think. But what it does communicate is empathy. It does communicate incarnation, that we would incarnate ourselves in each other's world so that we're saying to them, I want to know what this is like for you. I want to hear you. I want to understand you. Walk me through how you think and feel and why you think and feel. And it's this proximity. It's this closeness. It's this incarnation that creates understanding, that creates love, and that allows peacemaking to happen. And church, I can't, I can't say it any more clearly, but that it is, it's just so unloving to criticize what someone believes or feels before you empathize with why they believe or feel. And if there's one thing I could just plead with you, plead with us as the church, plead with you at Reach Montreal, is that, that we would be people, that we would be known as people who strive to enter into each other's worlds before we speak about someone's world. There's just something so loving about that. And it doesn't mean we abandon truth. It doesn't mean that we always will agree. It doesn't mean that we have some fickle, silly version, dull version of peace, but that that process is one that does create peace. It cultivates it. It, it validates someone, even when it's time to correct someone. I can't tell you how many times I've seen conflicts resolved or tensions solved or peace restored when people actually do the hard work of understanding why someone is saying what they're saying before they try to correct what they're saying. And the more that I, I kind of spend time online and see different figures or even Christian personalities sitting behind YouTube or behind their Twitters, is that just all over the place, in the name of trying to shed light on things, we're just breaching Matthew 18 by not actually going to brothers and sisters directly to offer correction lovingly. And we're just sitting behind the safety of our screens, the safety of our keyboards and lobbing criticism. And not only is that dangerous, but it's also sinful. And so I would just plead pastorally that we would be a church that is known for this and that we would practice it with one another first. And then that would just flow outwards. It would transform everywhere we communicate and every way we communicate as a church. So to just bring it all together, where peacemaking doesn't mean avoiding conflict, it does mean that we're not the source of it. And un unintentionally when we are the source of it, because that's going to happen too, 
It means that we actively pursue reconciliation. It means that we go and make peace. We do everything we can to make peace. Peacemakers not only listen well, but that they're also willing to have tough conversations. There's no such thing as peace without them. <laughs> and you know, those, you know those ones? You know the, the conversations that you avoid? Those tough ones, those awkward ones, because it's easier not to have them? It's those ones. It's those moments of weakness. It's those moments of leaning into that awkwardness that, that God actually uses those conversations to bring about peace. Uh, this week I got to read Tony Marita's book, Christ-Centered Conflict Resolution. Listen to what he says about that. I just love how he summarizes this. You don't need to read the book now because it's all right here. Listen to what he says about this. You are not initiating conflict with another person when you confront them. The conflict is already there. <laughs> you are initiating the resolution of the conflict. You are initiating peace. Jesus is a peacemaker. He comes to us instead of waiting for us to come to him. He pursues peace with us, even when we are avoiding him. And when we initiate to others, we are being like him. I love that. I think it's true. That we have to be willing to have the tough conversations. We have to be willing to humbly come to one another directly. We have to be willing to speak to each other and not about each other. Why? Because it's in those tough conversations that peace is being made. And Jesus demonstrates it perfectly. And you and I will not, but he does promise to empower us to do that. That Jesus gives us his peace so that, why? Well, we can go and put it on display. That we can go out into every inch of our city as peacemakers, that we can go out everywhere we are and be agents of reconciliation, that we can bridge gaps. Imagine what that posture would look like in your office, in your workplace, in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting style. If you postured yourself as a peacemaker, the change, the healing, the, the cultivation of empathy and love and service would just be incredible. And Jesus promises not only to give us that peace, but to join us in that and ultimately join him in his project of restoring a new heaven and a new earth. That this baby's going somewhere and it's going to perfect peace. It's going to perfect shalom. That all things will be remade, renewed. Everything, everything that is broken, everything that is destroyed, that it will be restored and renewed by the peace-giving God the one that has made peace by the blood of his cross, the one that has given his disciples his peace and then sent them into the world as peacemakers. That's exciting. And we can't do it. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it individually. It's not man-made. It's not mustered up. We need to do it in community. We need to practice it well with one another. We need to be willing to fight for it because fighting for peace is the only way that we make it. So, couple practical things and then we'll pray and be done when it's time to speak so we've already touched on how important listening is like peacemakers are good listeners but when it's time to speak peacemakers breathe grace they breathe grace their words just kind of drip in the grace and mercy of of the cross so let me ask a couple just diagnostic questions for you i mean would people ask you do people ask you to help them resolve conflicts? Do people come to you to help mediate a disagreement? Do you have the traits of a peacemaker? Have you ever been asked to help walk someone through a conflict or a crisis in their life, in their marriage, in their, their workplace? If not, why not? Think about it objectively. Be honest. 
what has your tendency been when it comes to conflict and tension and, and, and resolution? What, what is your, your, your kind of natural thing that might need to change and be modified and reflect peacemaking better? Also think for a minute just to, about do you make every effort to strive towards peace? Every effort. Like, did you, do you just exhaust every line, every effort to, to experience peace? Do you make every effort to walk in someone else's shoes? How do you feel when someone walks in yours? How do you feel when someone listens and hears you? How do you feel when someone even disagrees with you, but does it by first walking in your shoes? How, do, how does that make you feel? Are you willing to practice and do that for others? Um, would those closest to you describe you as a listener? Do they feel heard by you? Are you a good listener? Um, when someone disagrees with you, or maybe even if someone's angry with you or just thinks you're a joke, are you able to put on kind of their shoes or their lens without first attacking and dismissing or even just deflecting? Um, do you ask for clarity about what someone is saying rather than trying to fill in the blanks for yourself so that you can just fight? <laughs> There's so many ways that we could come at this, so many questions that we could ask around this topic. But I just want to, as we close, encourage you to respond to this, that this would be an active response, not just, well, that, that was a good idea. Maybe in the near future, I'll do that. But, but actually, no, no, sit and go, where have I delayed an apology? Where have I avoided an awkward conversation that needs to happen in order to make peace? Um, where have I s spoken when I should have listened? Where have I listened when I actually should have spoken up? When I'm, where have I stayed silent when I shouldn't have? And it, there's a conversation that needs to happen. When have I spoken about a person, a brother and sister in the church especially, instead of speaking to them and asking for clar clarification from them? These are so important and they can be responded upon. They can be acted upon as we strive to make peace with everyone. And it starts here. It starts in our church. It starts with brothers and sisters who know the Jesus that is the Prince of Peace. It starts there. So let me leave you with this from Colossians chapter three. And it's just a beautiful reminder and really a mandate for us that after Paul unpacks this amazing peace that's made by the blood of the cross, listen to what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, like putting up with one another, lovingly putting up with one another, striving for it. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and correcting one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and in whatever you do in both word and deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me pray for that for us. Jesus, you have made peace by the blood of your cross. You've reconciled enemies. 
you've killed the hostility that exists between you and us. And Father, I pray that you would remind us of the mercy and grace and forgiveness that you offer us and that that, Lord, would change the way that we see one another, change the way that we think about one another, change the way that we strive to cultivate empathy by walking with one another and that, Lord, we would be for each other and that as a church that our witness would be known to the world the watching world that in our city and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods that there would be something different because we are a people that make peace. I pray that this would be true, that you would make it true in us individually and that you would make it true in us collectively as we practice it because Jesus, we need you to do this. We know that it's not done through us and from within us, but it is done through your power and by the work of your Holy Spirit. So we ask you to do that now and that it would glorify your name and make much of you and that you would send us out, dispatch us out as peacemakers. For the fame and glory of your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.